Hello, listeners. We've been getting some feedback that our podcast is way too soy. So, today's a podcast for the real men. Pillpod, Zack Snyder Cut. Real men <laughs> have been extinct for thousands of years. The feminized modern audience only like sitcom banter. Those Marvel films with their female characters. <laughs> well, we're gonna throw in one character for some banter, but I want the rest of you to be way more gritty. Matt, you need to develop ambiguous commitment issues and no more vodka sodas because that's a pussy drink. <laughs> that's right. From now on, only whiskey with another whiskey to down it. <laughs> Okay, good. That's your gritty power. Eric, what can you do? I guess I could throw in a lot more needless exposition and have less respect for our audience so they understand I'm referencing the great philosophers of old times who had superior delineation between good and bad relative to our declining culture's emphasis on developmental causes for evil characters. That's some good exposition. Now, Victor, what's your gritty superpower? I will express rage at Father Figure because I have lost the secondary female character that curbed my overwhelming Oedipal rage. Of course. That is the only purpose of female characters in Brit gritty podcasts. I also need you to take your shirt off, Victor, because you need to set a good example. <laughs> All right. Grab your video game controllers. Welcome to the Red Pill Pod. Get them nips out. I genuinely do think that like whiskey with a whiskey chaser sounds kind of appealing, to be honest with you. I only drink whiskey straight out of the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, listeners? Don't worry, it's us. We're fine. Yeah, we're fine. Spoilers ahead. You might want to skip forward 10 minutes because I watched accidentally, actually. I didn't know what it was. I watched this <laughs> steaming pile of garbage called the Zack Snyder Cut, which I started at 11 o'clock because I was like, oh, I'm going to go to Gee. bed at one. How but the fuck do you up. watch a four-hour film accidentally? Accident yeah, that's that's crazy. Like, I sometimes accidentally watch an episode of Friends, and I'm like, oh, I guess I stepped out and spit it. I don't accidentally watch a four-hour movie. I accidentally watched a four-hour movie. Whoops. Because men commit. They don't stop <laughs> movies and watch the rest of the next day like pussies. I am a completionist, so I couldn't stop until I had seen the whole thing. But it was like being in a stress position where you're like, I could hold this for like 30 more seconds until you're just in so much pain. And by the end of it, I just felt like I was being dragged behind a, a pickup truck at a very slow speed. So just that getting, ending, yeah. getting road rash at like 40 kilometers an hour. Yeah, that, that ending was really something. <laughs> Like I don't watch minutes. any superhero movies, so like I, I knew nothing. I just saw you guys were talking about this in the chat about the Snyder cut, and I was like, what the hell? And I had no idea. There's like this fucking like four year like like campaign to re-release like what was a shitty movie that came out, I guess, in 2017. Like I'm just so out of the loop. The only superhero movies I've watched are like the Batman ones, like The Joker, which does that even count as a superhero movie? That's like the last one I watched. Yeah. If you use the term embracingly enough, yes. The Joker. This movie is only NPCs doing NPC dialogue to each other. What's an NPC? The original budget <laughs> a non -player for the first movie. Character. Yeah, like yeah, they have yeah. scripts. 
The budget right, for the right, first right. movie was three hundred million dollars. This is the one that was released in twenty seventeen, and it was a huge flop. The one, the version that was edited and released by Josh Whedon, and they've now devoted another seventy five million to patch this up, which means this is pretty much a four hundred million dollar film. Like, not even including marketing. That's how much money was poured into Justice League. Yeah, I tell DC to get his shit back together, but I don't care enough. I just don't anymore. So who watched it? I, I think everyone except I you. I saw it. You saw it? Okay. I yeah, did. I but this is, holy sh- this is the easiest Freudian object I have ever seen in my entire life. Well, yeah, I mean, the whole movie basically revolves around characters with fucking daddy and parent problems. <laughs> like, that's the oh, whole yeah. theme. <laughs> okay, spoiler alerts ahead, but what's the great enemy? What are the objects called? The mother boxes. And by the way, just for the record, I don't, I don't care that you're spoiling it for me. So go ahead. The mother boxes. <laughs> so let's just break yeah. that down for a second. Does oh it have God. to be any more on the nose? The mother box is like this. Is this on purpose? It's, it parodies itself. The uterine cubes. So the great threat to these hyper-masculine, shirt-off-wearing, whiskey-bottle-drinking guys is the mother box, the great enemy object. And then the whole film is just an analogy for the tortures and anxieties of entering puberty and losing the feminine mother. And in case that wasn't clear enough, the whole point at the end of the movie is to enter a giant, fleshy, oval-shaped object these shirtless men have to penetrate it in order to defeat the, really? the evil. Not a lie. Oh, my God. And what's this mother box? What's that? It brings chaos. So it's a living computer. And it's, it's like called the mother their box. their version wow. of the Infinity Stones, basically. This is like Jordan Peterson. This is like Jordan <laughs> Peterson. Is, like, I like the chaos. It is Jordan Peterson. It's the eternal <laughs> feminine. Just by way of background, for oh those of our God. listeners who aren't aware of comic book history, so... Darkseid and the New Gods, on which this property is based, were conceived of by Jack Kirby in the 1970s. Uh, this was after he left Marvel because he had a huge dispute with Stanley. And they're widely considered to be iconic characters, and they are fantastic. But it's fanta- It's really important to note that Zack Snyder is giving a very, very, very alpha interpretation of the material. More like a uh, I lost my mommy interpretation. Every character is raging at their father. This is it. I was like... Batman obviously has daddy issues. 90% of the movie with Superman is like, well, I have daddy issues because both my daddies are gone, but my mommy's still alive. Wonder Woman has mommy issues. Flash wants to get his dad out of prison. Cyborg has like dad issues up the yin yang. And Aquaman also doesn't like his surrogate father, doesn't like his actual mother, doesn't know who his final father is quite yet. Like this is everybody's issue, right? That's funny. So it's just... An analogy for puberty for entering for 15-year-old males. Like, we usually shit on the 20-year-old males, but this is for 15-year-old males. Is it weird that this is making me want to see the movie? You should. It is. It's fascinating. Four hours of your life. (laughs) If you do, definitely see the first two, though. I guess actually the first three. Oh, are you serious? Really? I've got to watch all three movies before? Is that necessary? You you really don't. You really don't. Uh, It's true. You could could probably go in cold for this one just because it is... Do you think so, I'm going to feel so lost if I like, isn't it something to do with like, I did watch some IGN video to p- get me up to speed with what the Snyder cut was. And like, I don't know, is, is it enough to just know that like some aliens are invading and then the Justice League? Has oh, to get it's just to the plot them? of the Avengers, except mommy issues. Oh, okay, the other so thing about except for with the exception of Wonder Woman, the only purpose of every female character in the movie is to stop the masculine rage. So as soon as the guy's mom dies, he becomes like a 
a rager throwing shit around, hates his father. So, and oh, Superman comes back. He's fucking killing everybody until he sees his uh, ex-girlfriend and his mommy. So it's very evident that the only purpose (laughs) of any female in this universe is to hold back masculine rage, which coincidentally, this is exactly Peterson's interpretation of the movie Beauty and the Beast that the woman needs to, you know, hold back the rage from inside. Oh my God, that's so cringy. This movie is like... Snyder's version to Whedon's version is like Evil Dead 2 to Evil Dead 1. It recapitulates the entire first one, goes way beyond it, is a lot more fun, but leaves you with the same sort of emptiness afterwards, I guess. No, I, I do like Bruce Campbell, though, so uh, don't get me wrong. It's more like uh, Jordan Peterson is to Jung. Just a rehash, goes a bit further, but ultimately meaningless. Well, have you seen... <laughs> has it, who here has seen Batman vs. Superman? I guess you haven't, Victor. I don't think I have. Okay, the movie is fascinating because it basically, in the non-director's cut, it's basically what you would expect a drunk right-wing philosophy student to come up with if they were making a superhero movie at like three in the morning. Like everything is literally talking heads, spouting out theological cliches. Then there's a bunch of Ayn Rand shit thrown in talking about how these people are like living gods amongst us and how we don't know how to like bask sufficiently in their presence. Then Doomsday comes, everybody dies, and a lot of stuff blows up at the end. And like that, this movie was like that on steroids in the sense that if the Marvel films are kind of about deconstructing the superhero arc a little bit by making these people quasi-human and kind of funny, this was really like, no, these people are a fucking huge deal. And you've got to treat them with the same significance that like the ancient Athenians treated their gods. Like that's what a big deal these people are. <laughs> they brought them back to life. I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more about this this fleshy this fleshy thing that they have to enter into. Yeah, they have movie. to literally penetrate the giant flesh thing to to take care of the female chaos. The mother box, okay? <laughs> how yeah. how much more on the nose can you get? The uterine <laughs> cubes. That's the thing is, I don't think he meant to do any of it. That's what makes it so hilarious. It's ideology in oh, operation. By the way, funniest line of the movie, very opening scene when it says announces itself um, this movie is shot in four by four by three aspect ratio in keeping with Zack Snyder's creative vision. <laughs> what the Why? fuck? Yeah, Wait, the movie was shot. The movie was shot in four by three. Are you kidding me? That's so weird. Christopher Nolan is like, I'm only going to shoot in film because this is what real men fit shoot in. <laughs> and then this is just taking it one level further. No, we have to have a four by three aspect ratio because a widescreen is too vaginal. Or maybe, or it's because he wants to remember when he was a child and all the TVs were four by three. And it's like, it's like recapturing yeah. the childhood, the childhood wonder at watching a superhero on your old four by three CRT TV. I, I died. It's also like, I, I've been, never seen a movie, even like those David, old David Lean epics that actually is broken up into parts that announce themselves with like title cards. I don't know if you, yeah, there's literally like a part yeah, that one was weird. with the title, part two with the title, part three with that the title. That was jarring, yeah. yeah. It was so strange, like part two, and then it names the chapter. It's like, yeah, I was it's a like bit... Quentin Tarantino that did that or something? I don't know. I thought it was yeah. going to be a nice three-act film, and that's why I, was, I kept watching up till three in the morning, because I was like, oh, there can't be another one. No, there's six <laughs> parts. And then an epilogue. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. Epilogue goes and then on like for a, a forty-five minute epilogue with oh more my God. mommy issues introduced. Oh my like God! 
45 minutes of slow motion throughout the whole movie, too. They really could have. Well, oddly enough, Joker shows up at the very end for really no goddamn good reason at all. Just to promise a movie now that's never going to come. And I found out that I sat there thinking to myself, I'm like, he's probably the most mentally stable person in this movie. Because at least he doesn't (laughs) seem to have any Oedipal issues going. He's just like, yeah, like, I like to kill people. It is what it is. Everyone else here is riven with neuroses. And Victor, the reason why the world is destroyed in the epilogue is because Superman's girlfriend died. So she oh. was she was holding back the rage. She let it go. We're going to get that movie next. But I don't know oh how you can God. be so on the nose. I have a question. There might be, actually, because like this movie is very successful. Sir. Um, yeah. So, Matt, I'm curious, like, wh- like as the probably the one who's the most fan of superhero stuff here, mm-hmm. like, I wonder, do you have... Like, I think this raises kind of a question about, like, the the indul- indulging in this kind of, like, pleasure. Like, these kinds of movies that have these sorts of, like, ham-fisted, cheesy uh, things. Like, what's... Like, do you have a de- defense for it? or But at the same time, like, obviously there's the perspective of just, like, you don't necessarily need a defense for this. But I just wonder how you think about it or position it in, like, your own sort of intellectual... Uh, personal economy of your thinking? Well, I think that there is actually a good reason to watch these things. Uh, and it's kind of an anti-Adornian reason. Adorno's kind of insistence was that the products of the culture industry are used to essentially bamboozle us uh, into play into, you know, apathy uh, towards our social conditions. And I think these movies definitely play that role. You can analyze it from this level. But I actually think the kind of approach that Pills has taken, this Zizekian ideology analysis, is actually much more interesting. Because there's a reason these movies are really popular, and it's not just because they're entertaining. Uh, it's because they speak to something in people, probably something that people, a lot of us aren't even really conscious of. And analyzing them for that reason can tell you a lot about where people's headspace is at. Uh, and it's worth noting that the kind of plasticity of these characters itself is kind of interesting. Uh, they kind of resemble Sherlock Holmes in this respect, in that there have been many, many different interpretations of them uh, over the 70, 80 years they've existed. Uh, and these interpretations don't just vary widely in terms of their aesthetics, but also the kind of political intention behind them. Like Batman has been everything from like a gothic film noir type anti-hero who kind of stands against a corrupt system to in this movie where he's basically fucking Zeus there to like reaffirm the importance of patriarchy and the security it provides us. Right. He's been put to all these different purposes. And but he's also like that way. the Hawkeye of this movie and how much he actually sucks and can't do anything. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Basically, it's like there's Superman and then there's this guy with a grappling hook and a missile. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's well, true. I, I was kind of curious because uh, I think it's maybe raises a question that could take us towards our theme for the episode. If, if I even if we even have consensus on what the theme for the episode is going to be that like, you know, this kind of analysis of the film, um, you know, heard by people like, you know, people who aren't, uh, you know, theoretically educated, who aren't in the world of theory. Right. Like it can be sometimes heard as like a snobby rebuke of like, you know, and to, to use a word pills used when he was on Epoch Philosophies. It's like interrupting people's ability to come like in, in the sense of like enjoying these things. Right? <laughs> I think it, I like, said nut, nut. Nut, nut, yeah, nut, and, and like interfering <laughs> with our block. ability to nut, and like I just think that that's an interesting way into the a conversation, right? Like, in what way does uncovering the nascent uh, sorts of like ideological content as sort of revealing it to be like one dimensional or playing on tropes or, or or put another way, playing on sort of like the repetitions of human behavior, like it's kind of 
ignoble. It's like an it's an ignoble pointing out to like our in our like sort of the pattern following that we have. And I don't know, maybe that we could use that as a way in to the conversation. Okay, so mm-hmm. I'm gonna introduce our two methodolo- our methodological foundation for this. But before we move on, and if there's any other point to this movie, I just saw this movie as the most reactionary steaming pile of shit I've ever seen. And the whole point of it is we don't want no more SJW movies. We don't want any sitcom superhero movies like at the Avengers when all the all the women are charging together. You know, all the women people join up in the battle. We don't want any of that shit. We want the good old days when like superheroes were gods, kind of like Matt was saying. But when it's reacting to is what our actual topic for the day is um, moral art or the moral function of art, including film in this in this sense, the moral function of art in our culture today because whoever made this and likes this movie hates that uh, that film is moralizing um and i think we probably disagree with that often for different reasons than this because this is so on the nose about it but um like getting rid of the skunk in space jam because he's uh he's rape culture or whatever um, right. this is that, that, that impulse is saying like, we need to protect the children. We need to control what people see, because if they see this happening in movies, then it's going to be the way that they act out in real life. And this movie is saying, fuck all that. This is move, movies are for, for this purpose, which is completely antithetical to, uh, art has a moral purpose. So art as a moral purpose is going to be our topic. And this movie okay. hates that shit. It's a good topic. I think if you look at the Marvel films, the Marvel films fall on a spectrum somewhere between being postmodern art or in some senses post-postmodern art. And kind of David Foster Wallace communication and understanding is really important. Uh, and they're interesting that way and some of them are better than others, right? Uh, what's interesting about this film is it very emphatically rejects both kind of postmodern approaches to superheroes and post-postmodern approaches to superheroes. But it doesn't want to go back to the good old kind of Christopher Reeves humanitarianism uh, that you saw with like the Richard Donner films with this naive innocence, uh, because it sees that, frankly, as being too soft, too flaccid for, you know, a man like Zack Snyder. This is supposed to be, uh, like Pill said, a real in your face. These guys are better than you. And if a couple fucking hundred million people need to die for them to complete their mission, then so be it, because this struggle is taking place at a metaphysical level you can't understand. And I actually don't hate it. Uh, I'll be the first to admit that. I hate Zack Snyder's politics, but he is definitely a kind of pop tour of a certain sense in that he has a vision for what he wants to say. He's not just some director for hire. And in terms of his filmography, if Batman and Super versus Superman was like a low point, this is definitely much better at expressing the kind of Randian quasi-theological tropes he's trying to get across. And as an object of ideology, I think it's interesting. I really Does do. Does Zack Snyder have uh, a public politics? I'm curious. Like, Yeah, it's, it's not really coherent, right? I mean, I'm not going to sit there and say that he's a philosopher, right? Because having watched Batman versus Superman, I don't really think he's read that deeply into this. But he's talking about how he likes people like Ayn Rand before. He's definitely kind of knowledgeable of this kind of young Campbell archetype style stuff. Uh, and so it's all kind of thrown together here in a bit of a grab bag. But you can see why he'd be attracted to he's it, got, right? I mean, if you think about... Yeah, he's got eight children, which is kind of interesting. I'm just looking at his Wikipedia, and I'm yeah. like, wow, that's a lot of children for the modern age, which maybe does sometimes point to a politics, actually. Trad. And, and I should say, it's worth noting, uh, his daughter... One of the reasons he didn't originally release his cut is his daughter committed suicide, 
uh, in the filming of the original version. Uh, so he stepped away from the project, and then because of fan demand, he came back. And I think one of the reasons this does work better than Batman versus Superman is he really, he dedicated the movie to her and you can really tell that it is a passion project for him, right? Like he has a message he's trying to convey with this film and he feels it's important because she sacrificed a lot for it. And you know, the, the message is ridiculous, but as you know, a piece that's trying to get it across, I think it conveys that message effectively, if that makes sense. Eric, what are you saying? I mean, what, what can I say? I, I didn't find the movie very aesthetically interesting. So on that point alone, I basically don't care about thinking about the movie because it's not aesthetically interesting. So how could it really have a politically interesting point? And it doesn't. It's pure escapism. It's fantasy. There's nothing going on in this film, like even less so than in the Christopher Nolan movies. It's less political than those movies. It's completely detached from reality. It's not aesthetically interesting. The actors in it are just, oh my god, like like Gal Gadot tweeting about the IDF, I don't know, fucking Batman, I don't know why they got him to play Batman, he's just a brutal person. Uh, yeah, I just don't like him at all. And then that's two of the principal actors right there that I just can't stand. The most interesting character was definitely Cyborg Victor. He was pretty fucking cool, and they should have just made the whole movie about him and not tried to cram the Joker in or anything like that. I mean, that's the problem. It it felt like a director's cut of a movie that's already been done. It felt like they were trying to do everything Marvel has already done and is now moving past with cool shit like Legion and like the first half of WandaVision and those sorts of weird territories that Marvel is striving into where DC is still just struggling to pick up making a half decent fucking <laughs> movie on a consistent <laughs> basis rather than actually like exploring this morally bankrupt aesthetic of superheroes which marvel's already done and dc just can't seem to get right so i don't know what moving forward i don't i think they should just leap over this epic ensemble shit that x-men and avengers did like 20 fucking years ago did it well enough we don't need any more of that shit go in a new fucking aesthetic direction get christopher nolan back if you have to get someone who knows how to direct a fucking movie and do it <laughs> I thought what this movie was, was like what a 13 year old thought was really good about the Avengers and yeah, then just yeah. amped up because it has totally, like Eric said, there was nothing in it. It had not a single understanding of human conversation, human motivation, human behavior. There was not even a trace of a person mm -hmm. in this movie. It was preposterous. Mm -hmm. Well, but I think this actually demonstrates the problem with so we say archetypal ways of approaching cinema, because I actually do think, again, as a piece of pop art, it's interesting. I think it's devoid of deeply resonant value in the way that Eric is talking about. But the reason it works for people is because it does appeal hard to a certain sense of what these archetypes are trying to accomplish, which is precisely to elevate the kind of psychological conflicts these people are dealing with above normal human emotions and their nuances, right? Like if you think about this, Everything in this movie is amped up emotionally to a 20, right? Steppenwolf wants to please his daddy figure. Bruce Wayne needs to prove like, to prove something to his dead parents. And they really don't care that much about the actual human circumstances of this conflict and who it's impacting. What matters is their kind of epic clash uh, over their different pathological But I mean, their, their, pathologies, their pathologies would be what a 13-year-old thinks pathologies are. That's it. 
Well, that's it. It's, it's basically if you had a 13-year-old who read, I, I don't know, um, the Theban plays, you know, the Oedipus myth, and was like, oh, that's pretty cool. There's like this sphinx, and then like he kills his father, man. Like there's some deep shit going on here. I'm going to make a film about that. It's the same kind of idea, right? Uh, but again, I think it's interesting that this kind of extremely hyper-real approach to archetypal filmmaking, uh, devoid of kind of nuance and substance, is becoming really resonant to people. But I don't know, maybe that's just me. I kind of think that this development is culturally interesting. Well, I'm curious, sense. like, so how does that fit into, because something Pill said earlier that I think is interesting, we should actually get to the topic of moralizing in film, because like this is like a hyper-real spectacle, but then we have other movies that are presumably also hyper real spectacles, but have like uh, like more of a moralization or they're more they're accused of, of kind of like ham fisted attempts to push forward. I don't know, like like dumb things that that like um, stupid, like reactionary, uh, like intellectual dark web kids like complain about like Star Wars having more people of color or whatever, like like dumb shit like that. But well, this is actually where the debate about this whole franchise came in. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but Man of Steel came out, which is the first Snyderverse movie. And Superman. I'm probably not aware of it. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Superman in that movie fights against his other daddy figure in this one, Zod, right? And he has basically three daddy figures in this one. His actual daddy, his adopted daddy, and the attempted daddy, uh, General Zod, right? And in the, comp the context of this edible conflict, hyperedical conflict, he completely fucking demolishes Metropolis, just wipes it out, uh, doesn't care, and he kills Zod in the end, and there's all nice. But this created a huge backlash on part on the part of people who like the Marvel films because they said like he's not actually acting like a quote hero like he's not trying to save anybody he doesn't actually make an effort to like rescue civilians he just like fucking throws them through buildings and he's like whatever if there's a couple thousand civilian casualties whatever the fuck um, and it's this again really divine conflict in Snyder's mind in this kind of thirteen year old vision and that became really controversial uh, because people are like they're not acting like good liberal heroes are supposed to, right? Where the emphasis should be on saving the everyday man. Uh, and so they kind of backed off on this a little bit in Batman versus Superman, because uh, they tried to kind of suggest that they're maybe saving people. But what's interesting about this movie, as Pill said, is it goes right back to this kind of hyper archetypal filmmaking. You know what I mean? Where really the mundane people of the world don't matter. What's of concern is these people dealing with their psychological complex through beating the shit out of this giant vaginal um, construct uh, and then destroying the mother within, you know? Okay, so we're going to leave that behind now. Uh, I have a big summary written down here because we haven't talked about psychoanalysis much or sociology almost at all. So I'm just going to try to give us, uh, our listeners and us, a methodological thing to stand on for this or for this topic at least so this film for this film this podcast <laughs> this gritty podcast so the theoretical <laughs> method Ooh. that we are going to use because we've talked about this already um are psychoanalysis and sociology and the way that those two interact so we've got psychoanalysis freud mostly most people know what's up with that um that started clinical deals with individuals in the clinic and then unrelated at the same time, uh, very early 20th century and a few decades prior, sociology is becoming a discipline. So a lot of theorists have dealt with what we now call sociology, like Marx would be an example of someone who's a sociologist, but looking backwards, retrospectively, he becomes that. Um, 
But early 20th century, it's Max Weber, German, and Emil Durkheim, French. These are the two founders of sociology. And the common thread between them that I think is relevant to the discussion here is that both Weber and Durkheim analyze culture, what we now call culture, as a specific different field. Um, and what's important to them is the way that culture relates to religion. Because early 20th century, of course, is when Western culture is being secularized in a way that hasn't ever happened before. So they were very attuned to those distinctions. And religion had a very clearly defined and dominant place in uh, European North American culture. Um, and that was moral instruction, more or less. Uh, you can push back on this. I think Eric's going to push back on this later, but we're getting a clear, uh, a lo-fi rendering. So then when we have no moral authority or no religious authority anymore, then for Durkheim and Weber, those functions that religion pushed or its purpose in society didn't disappear. It just moved to other dimensions of society. So obviously, looking forward, we're, we're saying that this is now in the hands of uh, film, particularly because it's our most totemic uh, cultural manifestation of it. So um, we really don't have any, because we have no religion, we have no unifying totems anymore, except stuff like Hollywood blockbusters. So then my question to you is then, uh, the panel, I guess, uh, this burden is now being put on art and culture warriors, whether it's conservatives, uh, wokeists or whatever, they disagree on what the function of art should be. But it seems to be, at least seems to me, that they do agree that art has moral value and that it should be judged on moral grounds, whether those grounds are good or evil. But they do have a moral function. And this is presumably, if we take the sociological thesis, because religion has fled. So now the functions of art, particularly totem and taboo, which is where psychoanalysis comes back into this, um, Freud's book, Totem and Taboo, written on by Durkheim. But now that now our pop culture, what we call pop culture, has the function that religion used to have. So we have new priests, new totems, new taboos, new rules, but they don't come from religion anymore. They come from this uh, vacuous space called culture, which didn't really exist in the same way that we discuss it uh, prior. All right. So uh, totem, taboo, that's a provisional method of interpreting, you know, the moral value of art. And with that, I'll just throw it out to you guys. Okay. I want to make a Zizekian injunction, though, and say that the truly radical psychoanalytical act would have act would actually be for us to interrogate why we've been avoiding this topic for such a long time. And the only conclusion I can reach is that we haven't want to talk about psychoanalysis because we're all repressing some deep sexual urges uh, that haven't been acknowledged yet. That's why it's taken us so long to get this topic. And Pill should be ashamed that he's not willing to acknowledge his own efforts well, to avoid I'm it. I'm glad you're um, so self-aware, but you're not really repressing very I'm well. I'm pretty sure you're sexual. <laughs> I was just going to say, you have not been repressing any of your sexual urges at all. Yeah, but that's because I'm more psychoanalytically healthy than you, right? I'm in touch with my own id. <laughs> oh yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing I would say is it seems like these the the moralization or the the function of art sort of competing totems. I guess well that maybe that's the difference, right? Like now the the pop culture there's like a competing between I guess the more wokeists or conservatives for what art art what kind of totems art should produce, right? And there's that's why we see a reaction against trying to like whatever woke guys 
certain pop culture pop cultural icons and you see uh conservatives like uh, you know and anti-wokist types getting all reactionary against it because it's interfering with the totems that they want uh to be in 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 the pop culture that they consume yeah like my my kind of response to this is i think it's important not to kind of over nietzscheanize uh our approach uh to art and culture right and i can completely understand why pills is doing so since Freud himself was deeply influenced by Nietzsche and in a lot of his later work like Totem and Taboo and The Future of Illusion, he does talk about the role that that religion plays in coding uh, our different psychic um, motivations uh, in a way that sometimes becomes interestingly enough mysterious to us ourselves, right? In the same way God is projected as being mysterious uh, to human beings, even though we're the ones who create the idea of God, right? Uh, but it's worth noting that Freud thought that these were universal human impulses uh, that you find regardless uh, of any kind of cultural context because they have a kind of neural basis to them uh, that goes beyond even your know, cultural activities and so on and so forth. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why he really felt compelled to try to insist uh, that psychoanalysis was a science. And one of the things that I've always thought most interesting about this is uh, it shows you how it is that a lot of the stuff that it covers really falls into this gray area since a lot of people are determined to also say it's not a science, right? Uh, I'm not sure that it is. I think it really depends on your definition of science, right? Uh, but it's worth noting that the kind of backlash that this generated and all the controversy surrounding it has been going on for 100 years now, and you still haven't seen any silence on the matter. I'm curious, though, do you think that... Um... Because like earlier, the way Pills set it up, right, is like you have the wokists and like the conservatives and it's like a battle for the for the totems of culture. But then when it comes to art, do you also think maybe there's this third camp of people who are like tr- trying to be like artistic purists who are saying like, no, no, art shouldn't have anything to do with the totems, that, that art just has to be a pure expression of like that there's something there's something like. There's something that exists that is like some sort of artistic expression that is just like freed from and like that's a different ideal. Well, I think this is what comes across most like nicely in uh, Jung's term where he talks about depth psychology, right? Because one of the things that you saw in conventional romantic art criticism uh, was this distinction between high art and low art, right? Art that reaches a kind of profound depth and art that's just superficial and glib. Uh, And I'm not saying that we should abandon that standard, because I think that there are certainly things that are of superior aesthetic quality that speak more deeply to human nature, however you want to conceive of that. But one of the things that's interesting about depth psychology is precisely that even what seems like mundane works of art, like pop art, for example, can actually conceal really important psychoanalytic truths, right? Uh, In fact, they can be most interesting if they are expressed in terms of pop art or other totemic symbols. Uh, precisely because then what happens is a lot of these psychoanalytic truths, rather than being made explicit, as you find in great art, it's coded symbolically. So you have to actually work to unpack it, right? Uh, like it's very easy to understand what Nietzsche means by the Superman compared to trying to understand what Superman means in the general culture, right? Because Nietzsche was pretty explicit about what he took the Superman to mean, whereas Superman, Clark Kent, whatever, right, uh, is symbolically coded in so many different ways that you spend a lifetime just trying to unpack them all. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh it's it it's like you set up you set up a, a film or a piece of literature as a dream and you analyze it like it's a dream. Is that is that not how you know, you know, Freud used to want to be a writer and then that didn't work out for him, so he became a, a, a psychologist and considered himself a man of science and worked out this science of the human mind. Uh, but then afterwards, of course, people took up his theories and applied them to literature 
and art and culture and all sorts of other things rather than just the individual in the clinical setting. I mean, in a, in a way, my head's spinning a little bit because of how sort of complicated some of this is. I mean, is art supposed to be, do we moralize about art and try to draw moral truths or consequences from it? Or do we let art do the moralizing for us in a sense? And so we just read off what culture is, what the human psyche is all about from our artworks. Do we try to impose like limitations on what art should and shouldn't be able to do in the good society? I mean, in a way, this is just the, the ancient sort of conversation between Plato and Aristotle over the role of the poets in a good society. Well, I think this is where it gets really interesting, though, and Deleuze and Guattari uh, leveled a really great critique of uh, psychoanalysis that Pels has talked about in his video, so people should check that out, I should say. One of the things that's interesting when it comes to whether or not more art should have a moral intention, right, uh, is that what psychoanalysis really brings to the fore are two different currents, right? Uh, one is this idea that we should be less moralistic about some things. And a lot of people see Freudianism as really liberating for art in this sense, right? And that allows us to express ideas that we weren't able to express before by ceasing to make them taboo. But one of the things that D&G point out is that one of the problems with Freudianism and psychoanalysis generally is it also opens space for us to be moralistic about far more intensely personal matters than we were before. Uh, and if you think about this, I, this use of the term sick to describe certain people, right? What we're really talking about now is individual people's pathology, the way they think, who they are, how their psyche operates. And a lot of contemporary art now pathologizes and moralizes about certain characters in this way, right? Describing not just their actions as bad, but their inner psyche as somehow sick or warped or not functioning properly. Uh, and I think this is really the good thing and the bad thing about psychoanalysis and the kind of way that it's influenced art. On the one hand, nobody's gonna sit there and give you shit for talking about sexual issues anymore or the deep problems that are found in human relations. But on the other hand, you can have movies that really condemn certain people as deviant, right? Uh, and Give an example, that, like like a contemporary example of a movie, because I. Well, I'm trying to think of something that's vulgar in that way, because a lot of the examples I can think of are about deviant pathologies, but are actually good, like they're intensely well, interested in explaining it. Like Taxi Driver is what immediately came to mind, and I'm like, he's definitely criticizing his pathology, but it's in an interesting way, and in a way that I think is good. I'm trying to think of one that does this kind of vulgarly. Yeah, because um, I thought isn't also isn't like the contemporary trend in movies to kind of almost like not glorify but like add a more positive like like the edgy character who's got all these pathologies is actually to sometimes turn into like a complicated hero yeah well, I, I think that's of, more um that's a very contemporary phenomena right a lot of just the original context of where psychoanalysis comes from and what its role is you know like Deleuze and Guattari call them the sort of new priestly class like we were talking about sociology kind of posits this idea where secularism and capitalism is going to take over all the things that religion was doing health and education and spiritual well basically spirituality and soul doctoring is the last sort of thing for the uh for the for, for the church to take over but then you have these this array of disciplines that emerges you have sociology which studies advanced civilizations and non-Western civilizations. You have anthropology, which studies primitive people. And then you have psychoanalysis, which studies, you know, deviance within 
within modern societies and, and the art of correcting deviant characters and personalities within a modern society and trying to mold them into whatever you want to say, productive members of society, people without such severe neuroses that they can't function in a, in a competitive modern sort of social milia. So psychoanalysis is like, I mean, in the broadest sense, it's, it's sort of modern culture turned back against itself and looking at its own deviance and trying to correct that. And then of course, later when you get to later thinkers like Lacan and like Deleuze and Guattari start to question that role of psychoanalysis and try to open it up to more therapeutic avenues, more sort of avenues that'll push people towards a healthy, positive life rather than just like being absent from PTSD or something like that. I thought of an example and I just want to bring it up before someone jumps in it. Uh, so sex in the city uh, is probably the best example I can think of. Uh, that pertains to what I was talking about, Victor, because what's interesting about that show is this, uh, the people in it accept certain deviations from conventional sexual mores, right? Uh, and even tend to embrace them. Uh, you know, they're very open about their sexuality, they tend to embrace alternative sexuality, so-called. They even see uh, sexuality as something that's kind of hip, right? Uh, at the same time, any kind of deviance from neoliberal ideology, right, uh, as presented in the, you know, the kind of 90s, 1990s, early 2000s kind of golden era, uh, is seen as going way too far. And it's almost always criticized both by the people on the show and by the show itself, right, as that's not what it is that we want. That's just kind of sick or wrong or useless in some way, shape or form. Uh, and it's a nice kind of distillation, I think, of the problem was there, with the is there any examples in the show? Like, cause I, cause I can't, I mean, I don't know that show. Well, I mean, well. sex in the city is a good example because it gives like, from what I can gather anyway, gives a representational critique of the Madonna slut complex. Now, if you don't know what that is, not slut shaming, but, uh, Freud says that for some men, it's a complex. You can only see women as either Madonna, which is, you know, pure wifey material, untainted or a whore which is then something that you use and discard so male gay stuff psychoanalytic film criticism susan sontag gays stuff and kind of the the cultural function of sex in the city is that each of these women have different desires different goals they certainly break the archetypical pair of madonna horror complex and it's uh by virtue of that critique an empowerment of women that have you know goals ranging from being a wife to being a, a career person and that would be an example of representational critique in that sense that we also have the psychologization of the villain at the same time maleficent that evil character from sleeping beauty she got her own movie mm -hmm. that shows why she became evil joker shows why like the there's causes environmental causes for why people act the way they do girls yeah i've girls never seen it they're jokerifying cruella Deville now cruella Deville is just an evil person who wants to skin puppies but now she's gonna have <laughs> like a backstory that explains why yeah you know? 13 reasons why is another one right i mean the suicide of the main character in that is treated as sympathetically right that she had an internal life that was deeply repressed by bullying all around her uh, but some of the characters in the new, the show, uh, like the heroin addict who's poor 
and winds up becoming a junkie. That's far more criticized, right? Because even though he has good reasons for doing what he's doing, he's deviating too far and he doesn't have, is not dealing with the kind of neuroses that we expect in a late capitalist society in the proper way. Okay, so now we're doing something different though, because those are the movies performing like an analytic function for the audience. They're performing as the analysis saying, or the analyst. We have this person that's up till now been a stock character. They just appeared evil or they appeared to be, you know, a, a sexual deviant or whatever kind of deviant. But now we're going to give their backstory so that you can like truly understand them. But then we have the other side of this as a totem where people watch this show and say, you're glorifying violence or you're justifying um, toxic masculinity or you're ju justifying rape culture by having this skunk who always tries to uh, or you're perpe you're <laughs> force himself onto the little kitty. <laughs> you're perpetuating fem feminine tropes yeah, that are damaging. Of, of, yeah, right, right. Of the, the Madonna whore binary, or the, yeah. or the or the chaotic, the chaotic like slut or something like. Yeah, no, absolutely right, and I think this is something that Zizek catches on to very well, right? Where he points out that in our liberal, tolerant, post-Freudian society, it's not like we've gotten away from taboos, right? Uh, some things are less taboo than they were before, right? You'd never find somebody who's going to criticize you for an acceptable sexuality that would deviate from conventional Puritan sexual morality any longer, right? at least not in many communities. Um, but things like not accepting someone's identity, even if you're critical of certain since their moral values, becomes a lot more problematic to navigate, right? Um, in our contemporary environment. And art expresses that uh, very nicely, I think. Yeah, I was curious, like, um, you know, Pills, like, do you think art is like the, cause I, I mean, I really wanted to talk, maybe we won't talk about it in this episode, but I feel like it fits. Like I mentioned earlier, like, like, the role that certain kinds of cultural things like art uh, work to um, kind of perpetuate people's internal like economy of satisfaction, right? In like a psychoanalytic sense. And earlier, like, you know, that joke about like interrupting people's ability to nut. Like, I, like, I feel like it's interesting <laughs> to think about the role that art and like these totems are playing in people's internal ability to feel like the sense of satisfaction and like the ways that they there's like a kind of battle over the economy of this of like of of of, of nutting right like kind of internally the the, the, the satisfaction that the, the, the economy of nut like the way that 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 media and art plays in in people's like own internal sort of narratives libidinal economy yeah libidinal economy right I like this idea, I think, of interrupting people's ability to nut because that's that's what we're doing when we criticize works exactly. of art in a way. We're trying to do that. But it like I am often very thankful in, in a kind of mixed way because it's like, oh, great, you just ruined this thing I liked for me. But I mean, I'm glad you pointed it out. Like one of the big revelations in my life was growing up as I really loved the Lord of the Rings movies. And then one day somebody pointed out to me and said, hey, did you notice that there's not a single person of color in that entire fucking trilogy? And I said, oh my God, I would look back at the movie. I said, I think maybe some of the orcs are brown people, but otherwise- Yo, This is bad. So the Haradrim described in the book are described as like having black skin. And I remember watching like the director's or the director's commentary of Lord of the Rings and one of the women said we don't want another evil race that's black so we didn't make them black but they're just nondescript 
Persian or Middle Eastern something like, good job, you got the moral high ground now. But she was proud of yeah. herself. Yeah, they they either appear as like evil guys in makeup or with their faces covered, but none of the protagonist races in Lord of the Rings are people of color. And of course, I think they fixed that a little bit in like the Hobbit trilogy. Yeah. Someone po pointed that out to me and it, it blew my mind. Or even growing up, I loved watching... The, I loved watching the Hercules, The Legend Continues with Kevin Sorbo, and now I look at Kevin Sorbo's recent work, and he's a right-wing fucking nut job who, who picks only movies that have an extremely strong conservative message. Like, I think one of his last movies was a disaster movie about how society is crumbling and liberals are coming to take all their guns, and they need to protect their guns. It was worse. And, uh, like, it's that basically the liberals take away the guns as a precondition for establishing their dictatorship, and then they heroically fight against them with crossbows and other things to get the guns back. But I, it, it's crazy. Yeah, and in any case, are, are you saying that the art is a totem, or that you saw it as a totem, and now you're being like morally educated by them, or it, how does that change your interpretation? Yeah. I mean, people together, when we criticize art and we discuss these things, like I said earlier, with sort of, I'm, I've always been somebody who's very aware of the, the Israel-Palestine situation, and then when someone like Gal Gadot treat, tweets these uncritically pro-Israeli things, it makes it hard for me to enjoy any film that she's in afterwards, and I was making the same point about Kevin Sorbo. I right. can no longer go back and enjoy my childhood because <laughs> these fucking people exist. And it's like, I either have to be completely apolitical and be like, oh my god, I'm so excited, Blink-182 released some new shit, and be like a fucking... <laughs> ding dong and listen to that shit <laughs> or I, I just i ha can't enjoy modern culture because it's all just permeated by bullshit people with their own agendas trying to make money yeah and and then i agree with like adorno in the end and saying this is all just a fucking show to get your money stop buying into it and criticize to your heart's content because ultimately it's going to be good for you it's going to be good for other people even if you're wrong just put some ideas out there and so i often find myself having trouble even working myself up to have a reaction to these fucking movies anymore because they're just so all the return of the same they're just bullshit yeah and i hate it I, so I, I may i offer too i have so i actually have in front of me here uh, like bruce fink's uh, introduction to lacanian psychoanalysis and he has like a nice explanation at the beginning and i feel like it could map on to like what we're seeing in the shift of culture he talks about like how people go to therapy at moments when they have a crisis in their ability to have set to have the continual satisfaction that they had before, right? They say it's at, the, at times when their modus operandi is breaking down, and the sim the symptom used to provide a substitute satisfaction, but these substitutes stop working in some way, and it comes into into conflict with society at large. Um, so I guess I wonder whether like we can think about this shift that's happening more questioning and undermining of like the the role that cultures are playing because it's not playing the role anymore that it could before it was giving us a kind of sustained satisfaction and now all these questions right that we're asking about you know is there enough representation of this person are they actually like were these older movies that we used to enjoy actually somehow perpetuating some like whatever myths about things that we, we now disagree with, right? It's interrupting, it's interrupting our ability to enjoy them anymore. Um, and now I think maybe what we're seeing in the sort of culture war, right, is that we're seeing more like wokest people being like, yeah, we need to undermine these things so we can create new art that's going to actually lead to a new economy of satisfaction. And then the more conservative reactionary type is like, 
I don't like that was working for me before I was getting that satisfaction and that jouissance from that. And now you're trying to ruin it for me. Well, I'm like, fuck you. I hate you. <laughs> I think they get the jouissance from being upset that the other person. In- oh, that's true. That's true too. Why that's the fuck too. would you draw like culture war lines over baby? It's cold outside and wait Dr. Dr. Seuss. But isn't that actually what's happening? That's the substitute desires. So like before the art was like they were happy with their little culture, but now the way that they're substituting that is the rage that they feel. Right? Yeah, like yeah, for, for sure. That's the substitute for what was working before. I, w- I want to say though, I think Eric had on something really good and I'll link this with your comment also, Victor, about this culture war stuff. Because, you know, you're right about the Blink-182 thing and psychoanalysis, right? Because on the one hand, people initially interpreted Freudianism as this really liberating uh, kind of effort. Uh, that you think would create something like take off your pants and jackets with its songs about jacking off and everything, right? Because uh, Freudianism exposes that we're all thinking about this all the time and there's nothing particularly immature about engaging in it or thinking about it, right? Uh, on the other hand, then Freudianism evolves to actually being a kind of insistence on maturation, right? Uh, that you shouldn't just be enjoying things uncritically uh, because that might be giving in to your own worst pathologies. You need to discipline yourself uh, and try to deal with your actual problems so that you start to like the right things, not just the wrong things. But this is really interesting because now you see a kind of moralistic shift from the original emancipatory intention uh, to a kind of injunction that you actually can't just behave a certain way, you need to think and feel a certain way. We need to, on the one hand, to interpret it as a liberating kind of approach to the study of the human psyche, uh, while at the same time that comes into tension with with its insistence that you need to be self-critical about your own pathological inclinations. Uh, And I'm not really sure that there's an easy way to square either of these kind of dimensions uh, to the psychoanalytic point, right? Uh, And the way that this relates back to the kind of culture war stuff is that I think that most progressives tend to like to approach psychoanalytical issues uh, from a liberatory standpoint, right? There's this idea that once we kind of unmask ideology, we'll be liberated to think about it in a new way and we can create new kinds of sexuality, new kinds of identity, you know, you name it, up the yin-yang. But conservatives tend to approach this from a kind of ethical, moralistic standpoint, right? Where the lesson of psychoanalysts would be be that you should give up these initial inclinations and try to mature yourself uh, into a good, stable member of society. The, The substitute satisfaction that I was talking about is, I think, what's interesting on the, like, wokest side of it is that the substitute satisfaction, I think, that now we're seeing is, is actually in the condemning, right? So, like, it's in the condemning of something for, like, not sufficiently, like, fulfilling whatever sorts of values. That's now where the, satis- the substitute satisfaction is, right? It's, like, no longer... The art isn't doing that anymore. It's, like, actually being able to call it out, and then the conservative is, like in like the reaction to that they get their substitute satisfaction so it's like it's like the it's like i guess the point is it's not even really about the the art anymore <laughs> well yeah it's symbolic now like the condemning is a symbolic gesture it's not political because if it was political you'd take all the books and burn them or you excommunicate or or export the uh whatever whoever made it to another country and you may do an actual political act but today we just satisfy ourselves with symbolic acts of condemnation we nut we're all, with the condemnation <laughs> yeah because we're all shut up in this culture sphere where everything we do is symbolic and nothing really fucking matters or makes any other difference and all we do is just we we argue about these things on social media 
which is exactly what social media corporations want us to do. And they make money off of it and they show us advertisements while we do it. Meanwhile, we're all just these fucking suckers who think that arguing about cultural products like films actually makes a difference in life. I don't I don't know if it really does. I do. I do think bringing a critical spirit is valuable to that. But I mean, in from the larger picture, I mean, all of this is just culture and it's a product of very carefully calculated investments and returns. It has nothing to do with in like almost helping people enjoy things and get through their lives and be entertained is almost a, a secondary consequence of this drive to make money. And it all <laughs> what, like, what does it all mean? I don't know. One thing, Eric, you said is if we actually cared, if we were sufficiently material about the, these products, you would destroy it because by destroying it, you pulverize its exchange value out of existence. So you don't need to deal with that anymore. But if it's a mm -hmm. hyper real economy, then the thing has sign value and you want to like perpetuate its sign value by giving it all these investments. So it might even be a, like a calculated decision on behalf of Gillette or whatever to say, we're going to have like, don't let the boys fight because that's just, that's like what our advertisements made us look like 20 years ago. Like you got to take your shirt off and look sexy while you're shaving. No, we're going to have like a positive mm. image of masculinity but they probably did that or probably somebody knew that they did that to piss enough people off so that this could become a trending topic. So it's the sign value of these things that really matters because if it did right. matter to whoever's censuring at, the, at a given time, you would try to destroy the object. And partially because it's all digital, it's impossible. But this, the circulation of signs has value in that context very much apart. And we could call it like part of a, of a commodities sign value is this morality mechanism. The morality is like a variable of how, how trending a topic is. So maybe we're feeding into that with the Zack Snyder commodity, which is a completely reactionary one, mm -hmm. but we're talking about it for a reason. And then since you can't destroy it, the only gesture yeah. left is cancel it because that's all you can do. Cause you can't physically destroy something that exists on 10 million computers at the same time and the cloud. So you just cancel it. And then, well, it's even a little more than that. Canceling it gives the thing more value. Exactly. Exactly. And right now canceling has, has very specific connotations and it's a, and it's just more fuel on the fire in a way when people try to say, let's say cultural boycott instead of canceling, but it's the same deal, right? Well, Space Jam, back in the news. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I wanted yeah. to make a distinction between two different films that I think express this kind of distinction that Victor was talking about between uh, like reactionary conservative approaches to psychoanalysis versus left-wing ones, right? Because in my mind, the best well-known kind of left-wing movie uh, that came out over the last 25 years was Fight Club, right? Uh, and the, that's a very psychoanalytically... Yeah, Zack Snyder is well-known for being a kind of democratic socialist, right? Wait, Fight Club? Fight Club, yeah. Wasn't that Fincher? Yeah, yeah David Fincher. Fincher, sorry. David Fincher, sorry, yeah, not Zack Snyder. Because that's my other example is that film. So, you know, the kind of plot of Fight Club is basically somebody who first has to overthrow the symbolic universe uh, that's kind of over-determining his identity. Uh, but when he does that, he kind of is immediately tempted by reactionary potentials, right? Uh, embodied in Tyler Durden, right? About Brad Pitt, who comes to him offering this kind of macho uh, rebellion against femininity and also against, you know, the contemporary culture. Uh, and it's only by finally doing away with that that he's able to undertake a genuinely revolutionary act 
uh, which is to kind of do what he's wanted to do the entire time, which is basically to have sex with Helena Bonacarter without there being all kinds of problems with it, right? Uh, while the credit card companies blow up. And I see this as a really emancipatory movie, as uh, Fincher intended it, and as the original author, Chuck Palahniuk, also wanted it to be, right? If you contrast that with something like Zack Snyder's Justice League, all the kind of pathological activity engaging and them trying to blow up these vaginal symbols and just beat the crap out of each other and with the symbolic universe that pre-existed this conflict being reaffirmed and restabilized, right? Uh, and it ends with this kind of nostalgic montage of all these heroes going back to what they were doing before because fundamentally the idea is that the world didn't really need to be changed. It just needed to be re-solidified. Uh, and now we can also appreciate the people who've defended the status quo Save a little from bit from feminine more. chaos. Yeah, exactly. Save from feminine chaos. So I think this really demonstrates the kind of difference uh, in filmmaking approaches in pop art, right? Uh, on the one hand, you have this guy who has to basically liberate himself even from his own drives towards fascism in order to genuinely become free and get what he wants to fulfill his desire in the Lacanian sense or to pursue his desire and never yeah. give up on it in the Lacanian sense versus this kind of Jungian approach to filmmaking you see in Zack Snyder's Justice League, which is everything is fine the way it is. Our pathologies emerge because we're unable to accept it uh, and chaos sometimes entered and our battle is to try to resituate ourselves uh, in a conformist way to the status quo. Just very quickly, it, it, it's interesting because most of the readings I've heard of Fight Club call it just like a reactionary, like like glorification of masculine masculinity. But like, you're right. It's just it's just interesting. Well, the, the original author, I should say, is gay, right? Chuck Palahniuk. Uh, and he's been on record as saying that he hates those kind of interpretations because he points out like Tyler Durden is not a hero, right? Tyler Durden is like a fascist icon. That's the misinterpretation. Misinterpretation of that yeah, exactly. movie is that Tyler Durden has to get shot. And exactly. that's the that's like the heroic moment. But exactly. the whole movie, I mean, to to dissuade Matt's interpretation a little bit, it does make him look really fucking cool. Oh, it does. Yeah. If Tyler Durden had directed a movie, it would be Zack Snyder's Justice League. But, but I think <laughs> yeah, that's it's true. I, it's true. I, that's why I like the movie, though. Like he like as a movie that kind of explores the fascination of fascism to like a certain kind of intelligent male. Like it's really good because exactly, you watch the movie, you're like, Brad Pitt is fucking awesome, right? Just fucking the greatest. Really interesting to me that you just brought it there. By the way, this is not planned, but I do have a YouTube video coming out that references both Tyler Durden and Zack Snyder in about the same sentence. <laughs> and it's already done. Yeah, it's yeah. already <laughs> uploaded. So it's not Perfect. influenced by this discussion. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. That movie should just be called Brad Pitt's Body because that's what it's really all about. It's not about anything Oh, else. yeah. That scene with him in the cigarette where he just like beats the crap out of the guy. I'm not going to lie. There was a small part of me that was like... Oh, yeah. Here we go. Yeah, here we yeah. go again. Here comes the... <laughs> 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 no, it was, it was more like the part of me... Wanted me to put on a helmet and invade Troy is what it made me want to do. <laughs> the part of me that like mildly like when i was a teenager was bought into this alpha stuff as i'm like yeah he's alpha as shit look at that right you know my soul well, he is this that's day. the point of him yeah. like, this is the 20 this is also like the 20 year old's interpretation of nietzsche nietzsche is like yeah. you need yeah. to overcome everybody else sucks blow up your condo and go start a fight club and then they miss that the final scene of that movie is him shooting tyler durden in the head <laughs> yeah exactly and again what i think is really important about this movie and where i think fitcher is really innovative is again, the entire movie, what he really wants is to be with Helena Bona Carter, who's basically perfect for him, right? She's the same kind of personality. She understands where he's coming from, but he cannot do that until he's able to 
He cannot get what he's been trying to pursue this entire time until he destroys not just, you know, the kind of symbolic order that's oppressing him outside of himself, but the kind of inner fascist within. That's the last step to achieving but his desire. We are sort of all over the place on the psychoanalytic spectrum we here, are. too, because Tyler Durden <laughs> is... I mean, in classical terms, he's the id, right? He's the it. No, that's true, he's too. the it. He's the thing. He's he's what what supposedly all humans harbor in their deepest, men. darkest selves, <laughs> in their hearts of hearts. Well, I mean, women, men, everybody has sure. this sort of yeah, yeah. this dangerous level of uh, of aggression and sexual energy that has to be channeled into positive things. But when we're talking about morality, whatever your preferred film, we're talking about are, you want to be Brad Pitt. Let's just be let's just affirm that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great cheese on that body <laughs> that you, you want to talk about with morality, the superego and, you know, the law of the father. And that's and then the ego is really just sort of the conscious life that we're taking in, but with all these other forces under the surface. So we internalize the superego as a kind of moral voice, and we are in this internal conflict with the id, the it that always wants to emerge and release this energy that's going to destroy society or threaten the social order in various ways. So when we're bringing it down to the basics, I mean, that's what I see is the sort of spread of psychoanalytic concepts. And if Fight Club had been released today, I think rightly it would be criticized for 90% of the movie is showing how cool Brad Pitt is. When, like, I think you're correct in saying that the point is that that part of you has to die. But the movie's not very clear about that being the most important part of the of the movie. Yeah, it, 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 glorifies it glorifies it to the last second. <laughs> I, I think that that's kind of where the Dostoevsky and quality of the movie comes in. And I, I mean that really literally because I like the film quite a bit and I like Finch's filmography. Because the thing about Dostoevsky, right, is the alternative, the bad thing always needs, I'm just going to use this really simply, the bad alternative always needs to be resented in its most attractive form, you know, ideologically, physically, whatever. Because it's only once you kind of kind of take that down and you realize why it's appealing to people that you can understand why it is that it needs to be firmly rejected, even in its kind of most seductive and emphatic uh, right. formulation. But right? does, that, the movie does, that, does that yeah. does that also that also raises the question too, like you know, if that movie was made today, I agree with you, Pills, that like, you know, it would be pretty uh it would be people would be like, what? Like this is glorifying. But I mean, that also makes me think like today, do we just have like a lower tolerance for movies that aren't making the actual moral message more obvious? Like, do we just because of our age of like more politically and morally charged things? It's like we have to have movies just be really clear because, and because to be we fair, have like, oh, that's yeah. what I hate about movies today is well, the just politics say, is always baked in. There's like it's no too obvious, but that's because of this influence from the reactions that these films get is you glorified or you platformed or you made this look attractive to impressionable youths. So now when we have to make it extra even like, obvious because if not, like there's, yeah. there's this word, there's, it's almost like there's an underlying, um, like kind of like consequentialist argument that we're now so worried about the consequences. I mean, it does, I mean, a little bit tangential, but it does raise like a, an interesting conception of human nature that like the liberal ideal is like feels like, or the sort of wokest idea has this, this, this assumption that human beings are so fragile, that their minds are so fragile that like anything can, can infect them. And we have to we have to free them of that risk. It's like it's like an it's like a, it's like an intense moralistic risk aversion. Yeah, like has anybody seen the movie Star? You've, I'm sure you've all seen the movie Starship Troopers. Yeah, and this is based on a property uh, Robert Heinlein novel that was viciously anti-fascist, and 
the satire couldn't be much more heavy-handed, right? Like, at the end, Neil Patrick Harris literally shows up in a Nazi outfit uh, and is like, look at the bugs. The bugs are afraid. And in the middle of the movie, there's this long depiction about how the human beings, yeah, we were kind of colonizing their planet and killing them, but they shouldn't have fucking struck back. So you know what? Let's that's go a in good, and That's honestly an underrated movie. And at the time, people thought it was a mindless like action movie, and they totally missed the satire. Well, it, it was accused of being fat pro, like pro-fascist for that but you, reason. But I think, but I think you, so you actually have it a little bit re- in reverse. So like the truth is that Heinlein was actually pro-fascist. His novel was it really? Was like oh, I heard yeah. So his wow. novel was actually like kind of glorifying fascist potential. And the director of the movie turned it around oh, and made it a okay. satire of fascism. Okay, that, that's different then. That changes things a little bit. That's a Dutch director, isn't it? He's the guy who did Robocop and then also uh, Total Recall. Yeah. That's Verhoeven, yeah? Oh, yeah, the director of the yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, he's but, but the Dutch is- guy. And he flipped it around. That, and it's actually, it's delightful. That movie is actually still, I think, re- or sorry, the book is actually still required reading for the u.s marine corps or it's like one of the lists on the of the books oh, yeah. that like the u.s marine right, corps reads right and it, next like, to ender's game i mean it glorifies the, the novel glorifies like like fascistic values of like self-discipline and like how we need to like and and it, and it kind of like makes these arguments for why we actually need uh like that citizenship can't be afforded to to like everybody you have to be like in a military person and like but then the movie kind of like makes fun of the whole thing and it, it it's is actually i think movie. that it, that is art at its best function is doing that kind of stuff. Not, and even if you, even if some people missed the point, like they did with fight club and I'm not saying fight club is great art. I think I, the jury's out on that, but yeah, yeah. but to, to take, like to take a, a fascistic piece of literature and to reverse it and to have only like a third of people recognize that and then have it like just appear as this uh, banal action, like let's kill aliens movie. Yeah. I think that's really clever. So do I. But I think so I. I think some of the like some of the tendencies to want film to avoid like these sorts of conflicts gets a little bit out of hand because I I think there is really great potential for you know these again these cultural products to explore political and historical issues and bring them to light in a way that makes I don't know even just raises awareness in the general public. And I can think of a couple examples. Uh, the the series version of The Watchmen brought a lot of attention to the Tulsa massacre, and for some reason, tr- something to do with Trump's Twitter account as well. But that engaged these issues in a very striking way, as did the other series, Lovecraft Country. Really stages like racial classism in the early Americas, and then you have movies like get out is it called and other like some of jordan peele's films and those ones i mean like in a way those ones more than the others they really hit you over the head with this post-colonial message but i think that that is a good way to go with it like just because you're going to piss off conservatives who have a certain idea about american history and don't like it questioned that way and of course, Hollywood has the idea built into it that these movies need to appeal to as many people as possible, which is why half of the superhero movies are rated fucking PG, is because they don't want them to be limited to an older audience. They want everyone to be able to enjoy them because they like everyone's money. It doesn't matter where the money comes from. If it's money, it's good for me. So, But these, these other films, I think there's great potential that should be explored more. And even like, okay, some people are going to interpret it as 
moralizing. You're, you're just formulating this liberal law of the father and trying to impose it on me. Okay, fine. But it's still worthwhile, I think, instead of, again, just slipping back into this like apolitical trash movies with terrible aesthetics and just CGI orgies. Well, I, I think in, I'm going to defend David Fincher uh, and Paul Verhoeven here a little bit. Um, by the way, thank you, Victor. I did not know that the Heinlein novel was originally fascistic. Somebody told me that it was anti-fascistic, but the movie definitely is, right? But I think that there's something useful, even psychoanalytically useful, about forcing you to kind of work through the artistic material to get to this satirical message. Because it resonates a little bit more if you're actually able to go through it that way. Because you understand why it is that something like this might be appealing, but at the same time, there's this psychoanalytic unmasking that takes place at the end, where all these people who present themselves as macho icons are literally revealed as either being shallow, narcissistic, or in the case of Tyler Durden, literally unreal, like without substance, right? He just exists in your head, right? And I love Get Out. You know, I love Jordan Peele's films, both of them, and I think uh, Kane Peele is also great. Uh, so there's definitely a place for things that are a little bit more on the nose satirical um, in that sense. Uh, but I don't want to do away with these ones that are a little bit more difficultly, difficult uh, and subversive in that respect. Because I do think that there's value in having to work your way through that. Yeah. I, this is my point about Fight Club is I don't think it is subversive. It's mostly masturbatory over the Tyler Durden character. And most people didn't yeah. get that wrong. Yeah. I like something, I mean, right. something that does what, the anti-hero the, much better would be Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood because okay, yeah. that, like that, that is a, both a sympathetic and abhorrent character. Every single character in there is sympathetic and abhorrent at the same time. Plus it has these yeah. themes of like the father and yeah. son and all those like weird redux biblical shit, but it does it well at every point. There's no, here's what you should get out of it, but it's about, you know, early capitalist America. So, oh, I have another one, uh, American Psycho, the, uh, I think it's the Mary Heron film, the one with Christian Bale, right? Yeah. That's another one that a lot of people misinterpreted because the director says, has everyone here seen it, the American Psycho with Christian yeah, Bale? Yeah, I've, I've seen it for sure. Well, she said she one. still gets emails every day from people who are like, man, I fucking am Patrick Bateman. It's so fucking cool. He's just like the fucking raddest bro. And she's like, the movie literally ended with him sitting there, not even knowing what's real anymore. And just saying like, I am completely alone. Uh, and that's after it opens with him being like, I am completely substanceless. There's just nothing to me. No joy, no happiness, no nothing. Uh, yeah, better. that one really in, indicts Wall Street culture in a way that Wolf of Wall Street does not. It is that that is that is that is more subtle, I think, than Fight Club. Uh, sure, but I, I think it's also a gay deconstruction of these kind of fascistic tropes in people. You know what I mean? And it, it's kind of a testament to the fact that they're so ingrained in our collective unconscious right now. I'll go there, right? That people can't really recognize that they're being satirized any longer. Yeah, but I think the reason why Fight Club isn't as successful, like, is because all like from my recollection, right? Like mm -hmm. their whole goal is to blow up. So like they end up succeeding. So like, and then, then like, cause, cause even yeah. like the Tyler Durden character is like, his plan is to do that like bombing. Right. And then, yeah, he kills Tyler Durden, but they still succeed. So it's like, so like the goal is still presented in the movie as being like the objective that we want. So it's not, it's not actually that clear. And it's like, he, he needed Tyler Durden to do that. Right. He needed Tyler Durden to, to fulfill the plan. So there's definitely an easy way of reading that movie as like, not as actually saying like, like having a positive image of the energy that the Durden character and like psyche within him had. 
That's true. That might be a mistake then in the film. Maybe I think I about have done that. Yeah. Think about desire. Okay. Think about what when we're taking psychoanalysis and we're looking at literature, or film. What we're looking at is the narrative as a kind of adventure, a desire adventure, <laughs> and the main character wants something, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to delay the satisfaction of that desire until the end of the film. And all the twists and turns that your that the sort of progression of images takes, that's the adventure of desire itself. And what does he want in the beginning of the film? He's working a shitty office job. He's got major insomnia problems. Baudrillard fans, eat your heart out because everything looks like when you have insomnia, a copy of a copy of a copy. And he wants to break out of this sort of somnambulant sleep world into a real political world with people and underground shit going on and, and real stuff happening, real events, not these fake events that are just copies of earlier ones, but real shit. And Tyler Durden is a kind of product of modern culture. We're all like little Bartleby's stuffed in our cubicles and we're all asleep. And then lo and behold, eventually something happens, something, some dark force awakens within us and we become, well, schizophrenic more or less but really split personality i guess you could say and some voice begins talking to us and telling us to do things and it becomes liberating but to an extent because eventually it becomes you know it becomes uh oppressive social it, it becomes oppressive it becomes it doesn't fit it draw it wants to push you too far you give your it an inch and it'll take a mile right so eventually you have to sort of kill it and have that symbolic resolution where you balance your original desires with the new realizations that you acquire throughout the film or throughout your life and in the end hopefully become a, a well-adjusted person or somebody who's less fucked up and less asleep in the end and that's the idea of bringing psychoanalysis to film is narrative is desire and the desire is a chain of signifiers images whatever you want to call it and so it's 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 the same with, with Fight Club, with any other movie, and it's really instructive to look at it that way, I think. All right, to get back to our main plot as we are... Uh, we're not at time. We can we can make this one a little bit longer, but um, to get back to the main point was what does... Uh, I think we've all kind of just instinctively fell into acknowledging that film has an instructive function, and we've all kind of accepted that my little bit of a push against that would be, do you really think that films have this instructive function that we think we do, that we think it should? Do we actually learn anything from it? Or is it just like temporary uh, catharsis to go back to the Plato-Aristotle distinction? Because I don't think anyone here is coming out saying we should censor art. I don't think anyone has even suggested that, even a movie as horrendous as uh, the Zack Snyder cut. But uh, if we if if it's supposed to be instructive, is it instructive to actually be some sort of effective thing, or is it really just kind of an art for art's sake, a super level skin on top of culture, or would there be art that you say like that shouldn't exist, and we we need to keep that away from the youth? I kind I kind of think that like it's the effect that art has on the society. Like I tend to be a bit of a skeptic about that, and like I tend to think maybe more along the lines of like a Zizek that really art is more of a reflection of what's going on in a society. And of course there's a feedback effect, obviously like there is some, but I think the more, the much stronger relationship is really like 
society and then art reflecting what's happening in society as opposed to society having a strong effect or sorry the art having a strong effect on the society yeah i tend to take the jamesonian line which is exactly what victor said which is that art is more of a reflection society than a determinant of society i would sometimes like to think uh that art can have a greater power than that and i think in some rare historical moments it has Right. Uh, there's very few people who would deny that something like Uncle Tom's Cabin, for example, didn't have sure. a profound effect in motivating people to look at slavery more seriously. Right. Uh, or that something like um, A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf didn't gradually start to push culture in a more feminist direction. But I think those examples are extremely rare. Right? Or To Kill a uh, Mockingbird, right, or whatever. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. I, I think those examples are extremely rare, though. Um, you know, and that's probably why they stand out in our mind. But I think I think that that like the the relationship that's actually maybe why I tend to be a little bit more skeptic of the of the of the wokest like uh, like decree because I think it's it's premised on a very strong relationship from the art to the society because I think they're perceiving a very grave risk that like that the art is actually is actually perpetuating these things in like an urgently strong way. And it's like, that's why we have to excise all these stereotypes in movies because it's going to perpetuate in the, whereas I think that like, yeah, maybe a little bit, but I really think the much stronger impact is from the society to the art as a reflection of the society than the other way around. I don't think we want to entirely say that there's nothing to be gained from a critique of art or let's call it reactionary art, um, which isn't, as Pill said, you know, to suggest that it should be censored in any way, shape or form, because I don't think it should. I I think it should be criticized and analyzed uh, and scrutinized carefully. Uh, but is this actually going to change anything? Uh, I'm not really all that sure. It's fun, though. I mean, we've all had a fucking good time here talking about movies shitty and more interesting. Uh, um, movies on the shitty uh, to the more interesting spectrum. So I don't know. I, I, I have a little bit of trouble with the idea that art is really just a reflection of society. Just because it, it, like that idea seems a lot like you know, the representationalist thing where, you know, society is a certain way and art is nothing in itself. It just reflects the way society is. And I think that's true to a degree, but the story is a little more complicated than that because it kind of takes away what is unique and interesting about art and the human ability to make art and art can change the course of events. And I'm including when I say art, I'm including films and radio broadcasts and podcasts and all sorts of like new art as well as classic art, like whatever, music, painting, symphony music, I guess I should say. But, but I think I think art is is something and it's creative and it can change the way the world is, thinks. And the best kind of art when you treat it like a reflection of society, what you're really saying is like whatever I see in that artwork is the way society is. And I think the best works of art resist you projecting your fantasies onto it, right? That's what the best kinds of art do because it's, it's ambiguous. It's indeterminate. When you come out of a film and it's not a piece of shit, but you can still say like, I don't know what the fuck I just watched. And maybe you have to think about it for a while. Maybe you have to watch it again later. It's resisting your ability to just smoothly interpret it. If it was a pure reflection of society, what it is, what that is to say is everyone in the audience is just seeing exactly what they want to see. 
And I think that's like the capitalist ideal of art that everyone can go and just see exactly what they want to see and then go home. Might just sit in a theater with a giant mirror on the wall and not even play a that's show. What, that's what pop art or pop like movies do. I agree with you. I mean, I would I would just like say that I definitely think I was more th- when I was originally making my point, I was saying that if it's one or the other, if it's either like if, if one is more dominant than the other, I would say that like the effect that art has on society seems to me let, when you include all the pop art, right, like all the stuff that is just being fed by mass media to people that is just like a reflection of what they want to see or their ideological kind of like fantasies or whatever. But yeah, I agree. I think that's a really good point. I'm, I don't think either of you would argue it's a pure reflection because it's uh, no. latent with fantasy. But then the the psychoanalytic category for that is the dream. So the cinema of a time is the dreams of that time, which include both repression and uh, kind of scrub self-image both at the same time. So you have like Leave It to Beaver America, which was never real America, but it was what some people wanted to believe that America was. And then you can, you know, psychoanalyze, I don't know, psycho or something like that. I just wanted to say one thing, though, uh, and maybe this is a reflection of the fact that Victor and I both come from political background uh, rather than one that's more culture studies oriented. Because I actually think uh, that the mirror analogy uh, says a lot about where great art finds its power. Because I think of the most influential kinds of art uh, as being those that actually held up an accurate mirror to society and show it without this kind of fantastic qualities attributed to it. I uh, think of something, again, like Uncle Tom's Cabin or Oliver Twist um, or Homage to Catalonia, the Orwell books, right? Uh, what they force you to kind of say, to do is to say, look, the society that you fantasize about is actually really pretty fucking ugly, right? There's a lot of ugly things in it that you have been trying to ignore, and I'm now going to shove your face into them, and you're going to actually look at them hard uh, rather than trying to avoid them. Because, uh, you know, no matter how hard you try to sneak up on the mirror, it's always going to look straight back at you, and I want you to face that, right? Uh, and that's a little bit different than our Eric's preferred aesthetic approach, uh, which tends to emphasize ambiguity, right, uh, as a kind of reflective moment uh, that encourages you to think about things critically. And I think there's a lot of value in that art also. Maybe it's just coming from a political science perspective. Well, I, I tend to like that. The more reflective kind of art, more mirroring art. I think the reason that it's made that this stuff is art in the first place, though, is to make it so you don't have that kind of encounter that you're talking about. Art is the screen that doesn't actually allow you to feel the weight of you know how awful everything is it allows you to filter it and the screen the mirror is the symbolic right like the image on the mirror is just the imaginary the the fantasy and the point of lacanian psychoanalysis is to help you see the mirror itself things like cracks in the mirror smudges on the mirror things that aren't being reflected properly things that are being distorted you know when you look at art from a certain period like okay in the 1930s for example i go back to hollywood and i understand that there was a depression and i understand in the united states there's something called the dust bowl and a lot of people were fucking upset and yet you look at 30s cinema and it's so it's so decadent and full of things like crime and sex and drugs and all that sort of stuff like how is that a reflection like you have to look at the distortions that the mirror is presenting you not the reflective thing and so like political science or not i mean culture studies everything is political anyhow in culture studies so in a sense we both just have different views of art and not determined by backgrounds yeah the point of 
the dream or the point of the mirror is that there really is no mirror without cracks in it. The cracks are fundamental to it. That's the thing. I think the the cracks in the mirror are what, and, and obviously that's a motif too. They really just, they smash mirrors to show that the person is fragmented in their identities or that they don't know really who they are and they're rejecting some world that's being imposed upon them. But that's what art really should do, I guess, from a Lacanian perspective, is try to show you the mirror itself and not just the image fantasy that's on the mirror that just reflects you back to you. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, I re- when I originally made the point, I, I think I, I, I mentioned like agreeing with Zizek, which I think is, is in line with, with what you're saying, if, unless you disagree with that. But that's kind well, of... Well, you both said I, mean, I was mashing both of your responses together. Yeah, yeah. But but just quickly, I do want to like like agree with your earlier point, Eric, that like, you know, art... Like making room, I guess I want to strongly agree with making room that art can sometimes be that that thing that like creates a different, like a really different, unique experience. The creativity, but that's obviously very rare. Like I think those kinds of that kind of artwork is is quite quite rare, and 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 it ends up being like you know a notable moment in in the history of art when someone creates something that is truly creative and, and unique. Um, but most of the time, like pop art, pop culture is I think functioning much more as sort of like this distorted reflection uh, that can be interpreted in various ways of, of what's happening in this. Yeah, Zizek's good at that in the ideology films or in the in the uh, Pervert's Guide films is, is saying, like when we all had the experience of watching the Titanic exactly. together, we thought, oh, what a beautiful love story. And Zizek goes, actually, it's a story about class distinctions and yeah. and the <laughs> way that the working class will just be yeah. thrown off into the icy water while the rich lady gets to survive. And it, and he's right. He's like those were the cracks in the mirror exactly, exactly. of the of the movie that nobody paid attention to because it's like exactly. like oh DiCaprio oh everything's so beautiful and aesthetically pleasing. But then he points to those little cracks in a movie that potentially seems to want have had no cracks and no aesthetic imperfections. Well, Kara, I just want to point out that when I was talking about this kind of mirroring functioning of art, I'm not talking about 1930s cinema or superhero films. Right again, I was talking about great works of art that serve a kind of political purpose. And I'll give you an example of somebody like James Baldwin, right, uh, who wrote some tremendous work, uh, pieces um, advancing the cause of civil rights, you know, through the 1950s and the 1960s. Uh, and in a lot of civil rights art, there's a kind of realistic quality to it, right, uh, that some people might criticize as aesthetically unsophisticated next to certain, say, postmodern art, right, people like Thomas Pynchon or Don DeLillo. But the reason why they chose to write the way that they did is because they're trying to say, look, I want to expose you to the fact that beneath the kind of shiny veneer that you're presented with in all this kind of vulgar art, you live in a society that's defined by these very deep injustices. Uh, And the reason why it is that they perpetuate themselves is because a lot of the people who support them are motivated by some very ugly pathologies. Like one of the things that Baldwin talks about is how it is that whites are actually really degraded uh, through racist policies because they come to depend on the sense of superiority they get from racism uh, as a kind of affirming their identity, which is one of the reasons that they find it so difficult to give that up. Uh, And in this kind of moment, what I think you really see is a kind of exposure in the psychoanalytic sense, right? Uh, Where it's forcing you to confront what you've been trying to deny or obfuscate the entire time. And this kind of realism is actually really politically powerful. Right. In a way that ambiguity might not. It provides clarity, uh, moral and social clarity, if you will, that's been obfuscated by ideology. 
And that's not to say that some realist art can't be really vulgar, especially if it becomes, you know, logic and facts type realist art, you know, or whatever it happens to be, or socialist realism. But I think pieces of art like, you know, Invisible Man, To Kill a Mockingbird, Victor mentioned, right, or Baldwin, you know, do perform this function really well. Yeah, well, I can tell you the, the 1930s films did really serve a political purpose afterwards when the uh, the Christian conservatives got a hold of them and they had that they made enough noise to have an entire code adopted by Hollywood, which was roundly mocked by all the liberal newspapers and magazines, and yet it happened. Okay. And then we have pre-code and post-code Hollywood. So, the, I mean, the, I guess sometimes you have to look outside of the film for the political ramifications as well. You want to know something funny about the movie Titanic? Uh, I was obsessed with that movie when I was younger, by the way, and so was my brother. But if you notice, Kate Winslet shows one <laughs> breast in that movie, not the other one. <laughs> And the reason for that is the movie code where you're, if you want a PG-13 rating, you're allowed to show one breast and you're allowed one swear word. No more. Two gets you an R rating. Two swear words gets you an R rating, but one of each. That's okay. Yeah. That was, that was internalized I by the film that. industry, which is, which is presumably liberal in, in its leanings. But, I mean, that's, that's a conservative origin of the Hayes Code. They had to appease the Christian conservatives who were, who were, whose kids were going to watch the movies, so they had to create a, a rating system. Yeah, like one breast. Your kid may have one breast, and but not, yeah. but no, no more than one, and no too, less than two. <laughs> well, back to the superhero movies. This is why Logan is the best one, because of course, always you want to see Wolverine's blades actually go through someone's head, but you never get the penetrative. Back to psychoanalysis, you need the penetration. So you need to see it actually go through someone's face, like in Logan, which is what made it the best X-Men movie. So Oh, and it was closure too. It was like, holy shit, it's like an ending. What? Of some kind. We do those. Speaking of endings. Speaking of endings. Hey, great segue. Is it over? Yeah, my beers are empty, so it's there is no sequel. My masculine energy feels drained. Yeah, we need to uh, get some of that bull testosterone. <laughs> anyway, uh, we hope you enjoy the uh, this edition of the Red Red Pill podcast. Um, <laughs> go watch the Snyder Cut if you are a glutton for punishment, or if you're 13. If you could smoke a lot of weed before you did it, it might also yeah. be helpful. I mean, I could see my my enjoyment of the film yeah. increasing with each took to that I took. But we pretty much spoiled it. We everything. did a lot of psychoanalysis. We didn't actually get to sociology almost at all, but that's okay. Um, and I didn't expect this to turn into a, a film studies episode because I don't know if, I mean, that's definitely not my area of expertise. No, no. definitely not. No. Um, but yeah, we'll just uh, cut it off there. Speaking of ends, this is from Pills. Victor. I'm Eric. Bye. <laughs> Uh, All right, take care, everybody.